Joel chapter 1, verse 1. And would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the freedom we have to worship you. And God, we, we do pause to remember on this Memorial Day those fellow citizens who have given their lives so that we can enjoy the freedom of gathering in your presence here. Lord, we know that many places around the world there are brothers and sisters in Christ who do not enjoy those freedoms. So God, we pray that we would not take it for granted and that we would be willing to take advantage of it and tell others about the good news of Christ, Lord. And God, we pray now as we turn to the book of Joel that you would speak to us. God, we we, we so dread the idea of just going through the motions of church. We so long to hear the voice of God. And so I pray that you would speak to this church. Lord, you know where every person is here this morning. You know each of us have a unique challenge. Each of us are in a different place. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're able to take one word and apply it in a thousand different ways and press it home to each heart. So God, we pray that you do that today so that we might hear not a sermon from a pastor, but the voice of God through his word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you were following the news this week uh, or following the story about the uh, tornado that went through um, Moore, Oklahoma, through the suburb there. Uh, for whatever reason, that one kind of caught my attention. I was tracking with that a little more than other stories. But it, it was an amazing uh, event, um, this uh, F5 tornado, which would be like a Category 5 hurricane, you know, just the biggest there is, in other words. 200-mile-an-hour uh, winds went right through a suburb, 20-plus um, people died, and some 200 were injured. They, they say that at its, its broadest point, this, hur- this uh, hurricane, tornado, was uh, over a mile wide. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine, like, a mile-wide tornado. That's, like, apocalyptic, you know? It's so vast and huge. And, and it went through there, and uh, you, you step back, and you look at that, and you look at the pictures, and you think, you know, what? What's our response to that as Christians? How do we, how do we react to that? What, what are we supposed to do? And one answer to that question is pretty straightforward. It's that we need to have compassion on people who've been hurt, people who've been in those situations. If, if you're near or somehow connected to people who go through calamity, you know, the Lord tells us to love our neighbor. And so there's a place just for that in the Christian life. But, but beyond that, I, I guess I'm also kind of asking, what is our response to the Lord? You know, why do these things happen? What, how are we supposed to uh, translate that into our relationship with the Lord? What does He want from us? Is God saying something? Is He expecting something in those kinds of situations? How, how do we understand natural disasters and great calamities in, in our own interactions with God, not only in how we treat others. Well, this morning we come to Joel, uh, the Old Testament prophet, and uh, we're beginning our summer sermon series in the Minor Prophets. So if you were not here last Sunday, we began a a summer series in the Minor Prophets, and I would encourage you to go online if you haven't. You're going to be here this summer just to catch up. But but that sermon last Sunday will kind of set the stage for the whole summer. Uh, You can listen to it online or watch the video online. We also have these little bookmarks. We handed these out last Sunday. This has the sermon schedule on the back. It's a little timeline. So if you didn't get one of those or you lost yours, there's some available on the welcome table in the back. But we come to Joel, 
And uh, Joel's a little bit of an enigma. There's a lot of unanswered questions about Joel, questions like when he lived uh, or what point in Israel's history he was doing his ministry, and scholars are kind of all over the place on Joel. Uh, But one thing we do know about Joel is that he ministered during a great natural disaster. Something really bad was happening, but it wasn't a tornado, it wasn't a hurricane or an earthquake. It was grasshoppers, lots and lots of grasshoppers. It was a locust swarm. Look at Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. In Hebrew, you get all these different words for locusts, and scholars really don't know what they mean. It's just like lots of different types of locusts, different stages of development, who knows? But I think you get the picture. Massive locust swarm. Now, maybe you and I hear that, and we're like, okay, you know what? That's kind of gross, but like, how is that a disaster? You know, how, how is this a bad thing? I mean, it's kind of a creepy, gross thing, probably some serious cleanup afterwards, but this isn't really that bad. Yeah, unless, of course, you live in an ancient, agrarian, local subsistence economy, where, where what you're going to live on that year is really what you're going to produce in your own fields. So, you know, what are you going to eat that year? What's your family going to eat? Well, it's what you grow, uh, your, your grain. It's going to be your grapevines, another big sort of industry in those days. It's going to be your fruit trees. And if they're stripped clean and torn down, what are you going to eat? Well, I guess you can eat your animals. What are the animals going to eat? You know, the fields have been wiped out. And, and there's no stop and shop where... You know, food is being trucked in from around the world. This is not a a global economy in those days. It's a local economy. So suddenly, you're out of luck, you know? There's canned food, but they didn't have can openers back then. So that's a problem, you know? But seriously, like, where are they going to get the food? So suddenly, this isn't just gross. This is uh, deadly. And Joel is ministering in that time. And, And so, you know, Joel is calling the people of Israel in the midst of this disaster to, to do something. And what is it that he's calling them to do? He wants them to cry out to the Lord. That Joel is calling the people in the face of disaster to respond to God by crying out to the Lord. And so you have here in Joel chapter 1, you have a depiction of how bad it is in verses like 4 through 12. And then in verses 13 to 14, you have the response. Cry out to the Lord. So let's just look how bad it is. And, and the way Joel breaks this up is he addresses three different groups in Israel that, that would be negatively affected by the locust invasion. All right. So first he talks to the first group, the drunkards. Seriously, look at verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. 
A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Total devastation of the vine. So where's it going to come from? The poor drunkards, you know? This is really going to affect the potias. You know, it's not going to be as much pottying this year. And there's no packy. So where are they going to go? It's terrible. The wine is gone. Party is over. But it's also going to affect the priests. Look at verse 8. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. So the the priests are hard hit. It's not just the people who want to drink. It's also the priests. Because what are they going to offer? It's the grain offerings and and the oil and the things. Part of what the priests offer is gone this year. Not only that, but remember the priests live on the offerings. You know, the priests can't be out in the fields all the time working and providing for themselves. They're serving Israel. They're ministering before the Lord on behalf of Israel. So they live on the offerings that the people bring. And But if there's nothing to bring, you know, the priests are in trouble too. And of course, group three, the farmers, obviously, verse 11. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. A disastrous picture. A terrible calamity has come upon the people. So what are they supposed to do? What is the response to God in a disaster like this? And it is to cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. So, you know, when when we go to a funeral or we're sad, you know, people wear black. Or, you know, kind of in the old days, people used to wear a black armband. And I don't know if people really do that as much anymore. They used to, to show mourning. Well, in those days, you wore sackcloth, which is a really uncomfortable, um, kind of nasty get-up that that just showed you were so miserable that you were wearing sackcloth. And it was an outward sign of mourning. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, back in verse 13, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, another sign of mourning and repentance. Call a sacred assembly. Get everyone together, not to party, not to do commerce, but get everyone together for a sacred purpose, which is what? To call out to God. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and Cry out to the Lord. We could probably talk a lot about what disasters and calamities and suffering mean in our lives and in our relationship to God. But here's one focus here in Joel. It's a time to cry out to the Lord. When everything's falling apart, you know, we don't have answers. There's one thing we know it's time to do, which is to seek the Lord and cry out to him. Now, this would have special significance for Israel because remember, this is key, they were in a covenant relationship with God. And so Israel, in some, way, in some ways what this is saying to Israel is unique because Israel was a unique among the nations. They alone were God's chosen nation. 
and they were in a covenant relationship with God. They had obligations to God. They needed to love one another. They needed to love the Lord their God with all their heart. And God said, look, Israel, if you guys can do that, if you can love me and not worship other gods, and if you can love each other, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to send you productivity to your crops. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. But if you break my laws, if you treat each other unjustly and cruelly, and if you don't love me and if you worship other gods, then I'm going to withhold those blessings from you and I'm going to curse you. And so as part of the covenant, there would be all kinds of curses pronounced on Israel, including locusts. Believe it or not, they're explicitly named in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And you can go read that later on today if you'd like. So what Israel was experiencing here was one of the the judgments of God because they had turned away from him. So when it says cry out to the Lord, it's a call for Israel to really repent and to grieve and to come before God and said somehow, somewhere along the way, God, we have gotten off track and we need to come back. We need to cry out to you for mercy so that you would work in us and get us back on track with you. It's it's a call for humility before God. And I would like to argue that I think there's a sense in which this is still true today. That even though we are not in the days of Israel, even though we are not under the covenant in the way that Israel was, yet some things are still the same. God is the same God. God still hates sin. God is still today calling a people to himself. God still sends judgments onto the world. You know, Jesus talked about this. He said, look, there's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be wars before the end. And he said, these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Uh, We're told in Romans that that the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. So so God's judgments in the world and, and terrible calamities are still coming. And when they happen we're still supposed to cry out to the Lord. You know, it's still, it's always appropriate to cry out to the Lord when, when God allows or sends these, these things upon us. Um, you guys remember, uh, you know, when 9-11 happened, and we all remember where we were when we heard the news. And my two memories of 9-11, one is, you know, two most poignant memories. One is where I was when I heard. My other poignant memory from 9-11 was that Friday when we had a prayer service at our church. We got the word out and we said, we're going to have a prayer service. We had a sacred assembly. We are gathering to call out to God. And we were in the other end of the building when we used to meet in the other sanctuary. And I'll never forget standing room only for a prayer meeting. How often do you get standing room only for a prayer meeting? It should be every time you have a prayer meeting, right? If I was really believe, practice what I believe about prayer and what I preach about prayer. But, but it was amazing, and we were just packed into that old sanctuary, you know, balcony, people standing in the back, and we were crying out to God because we were shaken. We, we had been rocked to our foundations. And when we go through calamities, they, they remind us that, that God is all-powerful and we are frail and our lives depend upon him. And it just kind of puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? It's amazing how how that happens, and it it brings us back to reality. And so we need to cry out to God in our difficulties, whether it's big, terrible, natural disasters, or or sometimes it's just even the personal disasters in our lives, you know, the small little storms that 
you know, just my own little world. And, and yet, you know, I mean, I know it's not as big as a tornado and it's not as terrible as that. But the fact is, when you're in a disaster in your own life, it's just as traumatic for you, even though you may know objectively it's not as big as, as other things. But that doesn't make it less traumatic for you. And it's a time to cry out to the Lord. No matter what it is, cry out to the Lord. Uh, and, and this is key. If, if I could just point this out, it's not just cry out. It's cry out to the Lord. We all cry out when things are bad. I don't need a prophet from God to tell me to cry out when things are bad. I just do that naturally. You know, I go to my, my wife or my family members, and oh my God, it's terrible. And they're like, oh, it's okay. And then they get tired of listening to me. So then I go to my friends, and I'm like, oh, so, oh you know, and this and that. And they're like, oh, I know, I know, I know. But then now I'm kind of burdening them. So, so I go to the next logical place. I go to Facebook, and I put it on Facebook, and everyone's going like, 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 or dislike. I don't know how you interpret that. They, they, they're, they're for me. That's why they're liking my post. Or maybe, maybe it's really tough to untie, so I go see my pastor. Or maybe I go see a therapist, and, and they're there trying to listening to all this stuff I'm going through. I'm crying out, I'm crying out, and they're trying to help me make sense of it. And some of that crying out is good. Some of it's natural. Some of it may not be helpful. But, but here's the thing. You know, you can go through a terrible time in your life and cry out and cry out and yet fail to cry out to the Lord. And if we go through a tough time and we don't cry out to the Lord, I think we've missed one of the few good things that come out of going through a tough time, which is an opportunity to cry out to God, where God is interrupting the material and emotional stability of my life so that I might realize He is the Lord. And I might humble myself and say, God, is there something in my life of which I need to repent? And, and, and I'm going to just be really clear here, because you could kind of take this the wrong way. I'm not saying that um, if, if I slip and fall in the kitchen on Monday and break my hip, it's because on s- Sunday I had shaken my fist at a driver on the road, and God's like, zap you, bzz. you know, I'm... So I, I want to be careful of making a one-to-one kind of thing. Like anytime a bad thing happens, I've got to go back and figure out what the, the sin I did was that God is zapping me for. Uh, and at the same time, God could do that. I'm just saying I don't have the, the prophetic knowledge like Joel to know why bad things are happening like that. And yet, I can still in difficult circumstances humble myself and say, God, search my heart. You know, Suffering just makes you or can make you ready to hear from God. Haven't you ever just been sick with the flu? This happens to me sometimes. I'm just laying in bed with the flu. I'm sick. And all of a sudden you feel so frail. Right? It's like a little virus got into me. I'm trying to be a manly man. And a little virus gets in and it lays me to waste in a bed. And I realize I am so much just animated dust. I am so weak. My life is a vapor. A virus could take me out. Wow. And then I just think, God, I, I think I'm so self-sufficient. I think I'm so fine all the time. And I realize that you're holding my life up. And this virus is reminding me of that. Oh, God, I cry out to you. 
Search my heart. I should be more for you, God. And, and sometimes even like sickness can be such a, a spiritual revival if we'll call out to the Lord and see who he is and who we are and how much we need him. And to ask him to search us for sin and to purify our hearts. You know, we, we want our external circumstances to be better. That's what we want from God. But you know what God wants from us? He wants our love and our trust and our worship. And sometimes he takes away the the physical circumstances of comfort so that we might have nothing left but to cry out to him and find that he is really all that we need. So what do we do in times of disaster? What happens when big calamities or even personal calamities crash into our lives? It is a time to cry out to the Lord, to seek him, not just to seek relief, but to seek him because God wants you to know him. This is eternal life. We learn this in John, to know the Father. Eternal life is knowing him. And so God makes a way through calamity. But Joel doesn't stop there. And I'm going to point out a second thing here. There's something else going on in Joel. There's another sort of reaction or, or something we're supposed to do spiritually with disaster. One is to cry out to God, to humble ourselves before him, even to repent, to ask him to search our hearts. But look what also is going on here. There's also, when calamity comes, a foretaste of the final judgment day. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. See that phrase? The day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The day of the Lord is coming. Yeah, the day of the Lord. That, that's a key phrase. We just kind of need to pause the sermon right here, and you've got to figure out what does that mean, the day of the Lord. It's a loaded theological phrase in the Bible. And whenever you see the phrase, the day of the Lord, it, you know, may, maybe the, the, the phrase we use today is the judgment day. It's kind of the day of judgment. It's the day when God breaks into the world and he sets everything right. You know, we just go along in the world doing our thing and people go along in the world just living their lives for themselves and don't care about God and don't care about anything that he says in his word. And finally there comes a day when God says, that's it, I'm coming down there. Now it's my day. You've had your days. This is my day. And God intervenes decisively into the world. It it takes us so long to mess it up. God can fix it in one day. God just needs one day. It's not going to take him months. Just a day. It's the day of the Lord where God intervenes to bring judgment and and to punish sin. It's a dark day. It's a gloomy, bad, and, and depressing day that comes along the whole world. You know, it's sometimes we, we struggle with the idea of God judging sin. Um, but, but God is a holy God. He hates sin. He hates all sin. He doesn't hate it selectively like we do. He's good. He's righteous. Sometimes people throw evil back in God's face. Have you ever heard people throw this in God's face? And they say, well, if there's a God, why are all the bad things happening in the world? Why, why would God allow this evil thing to happen and that bad person to do those acts? And what, why would God allow these things to happen? Why won't God do something about it? And God is saying in his word, 
I'm going to do something about it. It's the day of the Lord. And that's when evil will be forever dealt with and God's righteousness will be forever established. God is going to deal with it. It's the day of the Lord. He's patient right now, but God will have enough and he will say, that's it. You know, it's like the painting in the Sistine Chapel where it's such a powerful painting where Jesus is on his throne in the Sistine Chapel and he's get, it's like he's throwing aside his, his robe and he's getting up off the throne. The day of judgment has come and you, you see you know, Mary there and she's like this because that day has come and it's terrible when God says, that's enough. <laughs> you know, that's enough. And God sets all things right. So the day of the Lord is coming and maybe you hear that and you say, Good, I'm glad it's coming. It's good that evil's going to be dealt with. Mm. (laughs) Yes, it's good, but maybe not the way you think. Because you and I are part of the problem. You know, look at Amos. Keep your finger here in Joel. Just go over one book to Amos right after Joel. Go to Amos chapter 5. Amos talks about the day of the Lord. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. I wish God would just come down here and set everything straight. (laughs) Woe to you who long for it. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch darkness without a ray of brightness. So Joel says that day is coming. So now, okay, let me connect the dots now. Let's go back into Joel, unpause. I want to connect dots here. What's the connection between the day of the Lord and Joel's locusts? And I think it's this. As Joel is looking at this locust plague that's either about to come or has just come, and these locusts are coming in, he's seeing the destruction, it's like those locusts are a little um, foreshadowing of the day of the Lord. It's like they're a little preview. It's like a little movie trailer. It's not the whole movie, but it's a little, you get the gist. And there's a lot of details left out. You don't know what the whole movie's going to be like, but you know, you can get some ideas from the trailer and you can be like, ooh, that's going to be a heavy movie. Ooh, I don't know if I want to see that one. That looks intense. And that's it. So Joel sees the, the locusts and he goes, oh, God lets him see that, that, that those locusts are just a, little preview and foretaste of this terrible day of the Lord when God will deal with not just Israel or not just one nation or one person, but the whole world will come under the judgment of God. Scripture tells us how the world is going to end. It's going to end under the judgment of God. So Joel sees all of this, and for him it's kind of stuck together, but we know that they're that there is a day of the Lord still coming. You know, it's kind of like this. This is how I think about how Joel is seeing these things. It's like he's standing on a mountain, and he sees mountains in the distance. You guys, some of you have been up to the White Mountains, maybe driven up to the top of Mount Washington. And, uh, and you, you're on there, and on a clear day, you, you see mountains in the distance. You see another mountain, and then behind it's another mountain, and behind it's another mountain. And you know in your head that those mountains are very far apart, but when you're standing on Mount Washington and you're looking out over the mountains, they kind of compress together. 
And so they all sort of blend one into the other. I, I think that's how it, it's kind of like what Joel is seeing. He's seeing the, the locust right in front of him. Then behind it, he's seeing a day of the Lord. Maybe he's seeing an invasion from foreign nations. Maybe this was written before the fall of Jerusalem. I don't know. Maybe he's seeing that. And he's seeing other manifestations of times in history when God is going to judge. But then looming behind it is the granddaddy of all mountains. It's the final judgment day. And, and Joel sees those all compressed. Of course, we're, we're down the road. We're a couple mountains away. We look back to where Joel was and we go, oh, I see some of the things that have happened. But we're still looking ahead and we still see the big one. We're closer to it. We know more about it. We know that on that last judgment day, the last day of the Lord, Christ himself will be coming to judge the nations. Do this. Put a bookmark in Joel. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. It's in the back. Go to the back of your Bible. Revelation chapter 6. This was John standing on a mountaintop looking ahead and behind and in the present. Prophecies like that. It's kind of past, present, future-y, all happening at once. And here he is, and, and in Revelation you have multiple glimpses, not only of God's judgment in the world, but the final last day of the Lord. And in, in multiple visions of it, here's one of those visions of the final day of the Lord, I would argue. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth. Just day of the Lord imagery again. As the late fig drop falls from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, the sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slay and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand on that day? And that was the question Joel was asking. So now go back to Joel. Joel chapter 2. Okay, so now, now with, that, with that kind of glimpse of the, the final judgment day, I, I want to read Joel 2, 1 to 11. And, and I, I just want you to hear locusts, but also disasters, but also a glimpse of final judgment, the inescapable judgment of the day of the Lord and they all kind of blend and, and compress together in this prophecy. But look at Joel chapter 2, verse 2. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old nor will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. That sounds like locusts. They march in line, not swerving from their course. That doesn't sound like locusts. 
They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. There's just no escaping this judgment day. It is, it is unavoidable. You can't run away or hide from it. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened. There's day of the Lord imagery. The stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Just like Revelation, who can stand? Joel saying, who can endure that? So, when we go through calamity, when we go through terrifying circumstances and disasters, it is a chance and an opportunity and a moment to cry out to the Lord, to really call upon God, and to seek Him with humility and even repentance and to, to draw close to God. The other thing a calamity is, is it's an opportunity to get a glimpse of the final judgment that's coming. So that when you see the pictures of a tornado and you go, wow, look at that. Look what it did. You know, imagine another tornado that's as wide, not a mile wide, but as wide as the universe coming upon the world. You know, or, or when you see video of a, a tsunami, you know, in, in those, uh, the one that was a couple years ago in Japan, in northern Japan, and those are incredible videos. You can just see it all on YouTube. It's amazing what you can see these days. And you see this wall of water just plowing through this coastal town. And you think, wow, that's so terrifying. It's so horrifying. You know, imagine the wrath of God like a tsunami. You can't surf it. You can't outswim it. You, you, you can't get away from it. You can't get high enough from it. God's judgment is coming upon the world like in Noah's day. You know, you think, I'm fine. I'm way up on this mountain. God's not going to hurt me on the judgment day. But when the floodwaters come, the whole earth will be covered. And if you're not in the boat with Christ, you'll drown. And, and so whatever the calamity or the catastrophe is, a stock market crash, you know, it's, it's a picture of the, the, how money will not save us on that day. You know, everything can be taken away from us. So all of our little calamities and disasters, they're opportunities to get a glimpse and feel at a visceral level the reality of the coming day of the Lord. And when you do that, when I go, oh, wow, I'm getting a little glimpse here of what the day of the Lord must be like, you know what that does to you? It makes you cry out to God. <laughs> Except even more. And so notice that chapter 2 ends kind of the way chapter 1 did. So you have a locust disaster, cry out to the Lord. Then you have the day of the Lord. And then another call to cry out to God, except the language is a little different. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this. Even now, declares the Lord, even now, it's not too late, return to me. With all your heart. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to return to him. We stray all the time. And he's calling us to return to him. Or for some of us that might just be turn. Because we've never turned in the first place. For others of us it's a return. 
with fasting and weeping and mourning. Verse 13, rend your hearts, not your garments. In those days, if you were grieving, you might not only put on sackcloth, but you might rip your clothes and just tear them off. And people would be like, ooh, that guy's really upset. He must be really grieving. But, but Joel's saying, don't let it just be a surface outward grief. Rend your heart. Return to the Lord. It's a time to return to God, to seek him and say, God, I have strayed. I've been away. I've been this. I've been that. And, and this calamity is reminding me that the judgment is coming. And the most important thing in this world is to return to you and to walk with the Lord. And look, he's gracious. He's compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in love, verse 13. He relents from sending calamity. God is so patient. He's so slow to anger. Think about this. This is going to, this kind of blew my mind when when this kind of got my head around this thought. This might flip the whole thing upside down for you. But think about this. What if natural disasters are acts of mercy from God? In the sense that, not completely, they're obviously bad. No one wishes them on anybody. But what if when they come, they're mercies from God because it's a way of God trying to wake up the world before the final judgment comes from which there will be no escape? What if rather than just destroying the world on the day of the Lord, God is like shaking the world saying, Hey, hey, take this seriously. You know, God wants us to take him seriously. We need to take heaven seriously. We need to take hell seriously. You know, we take our 401k seriously, and and we take our our medical tests seriously, and we take our, our job seriously and our family seriously, but we don't take eternity seriously. We've got it totally backwards on the priority scale. And so God in his mercy shakes the world so that we might have a chance to take it seriously. There's a shot across the bow. There's a merciful, tiny glimpse of judgment so that perhaps we might return to the Lord. And then Joel says, verse 14, he speculates, who knows? Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. God may still have mercy. But what Joel saw as far off as Joel stood on his mountain and looked down the timeline, and Joel said, who knows? Maybe if you return to the Lord, God will have mercy. We praise God that what Joel speculated about, we know is a certainty that God has had mercy because we live several mountains later. We live several mountains further, closer to the end. And, and we look forward and we see the great day of the Lord looming where Jesus Christ himself will judge the earth. But you know what else we get to see that Joel didn't quite see then? We look back and we see another day of the Lord. It was when Jesus died on the cross for us. We see the mountain of Calvary, the mountain of Golgotha. Have you ever thought about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the day of the Lord? Because what happened? Sin was judged. The sky went black. The earth shook. It was the day of the Lord. And so while Joel was looking into the future saying, who knows? 
knows God might have mercy. My friends, we have the gospel, and the gospel tells us we know God has mercy. That if you return to the Lord, it's not a, well, I hope. Gee, I hope God might. No, 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 no. If you'll return to the Lord and turn to Christ, there is mercy. We know that because Jesus died for our sins. And so this is the deal. This is, this is where we stand. God is going to judge our sin. Period. That is something you can know infallibly. The question is, will my sin be judged on that mountain of the cross or will I ignore the cross and ignore Christ only to have my sin judged by Christ on the last day of the Lord? And all we have to do is turn to him. So return to the Lord. Look at verse 12. God is saying this to you. It's not Joel. It's not a pastor. These are God's words. Return to me, says the Lord. God wants you to return to him. He's so patient. He's so kind. And even with the things you're going through, can you hear God's voice under it and behind it saying, return to me, return to me? God can take care of fixing the crops. Don't worry about the crops. If you'll just return to God, he'll take care of the crops. Don't worry about the locusts. Don't worry about all the bad things. Just get your heart on him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll take care of the other stuff. But return to the Lord. It is our number one priority. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see spiritual truths the way Joel saw them, to look at worldly disasters and difficulties and to see your hand, to see your mercy, to see the the last judgment that's coming, God. Lord, I pray, just help us to prioritize things rightly. I, I just feel like my default priority settings are completely upside down. And God, I pray that we would prioritize you and eternal life and knowing you and your kingdom and your word and your gospel. And Lord, we would deprioritize things like careers and, and money and health and worldly things and hold those things lightly, Lord. Not, not that they're bad, but just help them to hold them lightly, but to hold with a white knuckle grip upon the gospel. And God, I pray that we would return to you. I, I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's far away that this would be a day of return. As we gather here for this sacred assembly, as we come to remember what you've done for us through communion, Lord, I I pray that you would call us to return to you. May there be hearts returning to you today, Lord, that have been straying for a while. And God, I pray for my own heart. May I just return to you, repent of sin. Lord, show me my secret faults. God, purify me, purify us all, so that we might be a holy church. Looking forward to that day because we're in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.